Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. The times of the Antichrist and false prophet. Folks, I need to warn you, uh, this is a heavy, 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 detailed message this morning, okay? Stand for the reading of God's Word, and uh, I want to point out something as we get into chapter 13. I want you to look back at verse 11 of the previous chapter. It says, They've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. You know, the Bible tells us that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. We have been. Uh, God's people have been all the way since back in Genesis 3. And we will be right up to the end. But God has not left us without weapons. Without armor. And of course, he's given us the victory in Christ doesn't mean that we'll be spared tough times as we'll see in this text for the tribulation saints who were alive during that time. But nonetheless, God gives his people victory, ultimate victory. Amen? John begins writing in verse 1, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now folks I recognize as I read that verse, not all the translations... Uh, record that the same. Great difference of opinion. Uh, for instance, Grant Osborne, one of the premier commentaries on the book of Revelation, Grant Osborne, says grammatically it should be the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Robert Thomas, again one of the premier commentators on the book of Revelation, says, no, just as the ESV has it, names that are written from the foundation of the world. And so that explains some of the differences in translation. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. 
If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is 666. Father, as we read this text, we need to understand that we have an enemy, Satan. And as 1 Peter 5 says, he roams about to and fro in the earth seeking someone to devour. Lord, we know that uh, during this time that Revelation 13 explains, it will be very difficult for those on earth Because there will be a ruler, a king, who is empowered by Satan himself. Lord, I thank you for the victory that you have given us in spiritual warfare. I pray that each day, even now, that you would help us to realize that we need to keep our eyes on Christ. And we need to put on the armor that God supplies his saints with day in and day out. We need to be watchful and vigilant. But we do thank you that the ultimate victory is ours because Christ won it at the cross. Open our eyes and ears to understand this text today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. After Alexander the Great died... His kingdom, of course, was divided among four of his generals. Now, some years later, a man by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes reigned over the Seleucid dynasty from 175 B.C. to 164 B.C. And his capital was at Antioch, which was named after him. Now, Antiochus is remembered mostly for his terrible persecution of the Jews from about 171 B.C. all the way down to 165 B.C. And this, of course, was that time period between the Old and the New Testament. Sometimes it's referred to as the silent years, but those years were anything but silent. 
Now, the details of Antiochus' atrocities against the Jews is recorded in the book of 1 Maccabees. And I want you to listen to some of the atrocities against the Jews that are enumerated for us there in chapter 1, beginning in verse 44. 1 Maccabees says, And the king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane Sabbaths and festivals, to defile the sanctuary and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice swine and other unclean animals, and to leave their sons uncircumcised. They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane so that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances. He added, and whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. Antiochus hated the Jews and the Jews hated him. He demanded that crowds of people would honor him by crying out Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus, God manifest. He even had stamped on the coins of that time the Greek phrase Theos Epiphanes, God manifest. And that's how he wanted to be recognized. But when he would pass by the Jews, instead of crying out Antiochus Epiphanes, they would cry out instead Antiochus Epimenes, a play on words. Instead of Antiochus the Great or Antiochus God Manifest, they would cry out Antiochus the Idiot. And this, of course, increased the hostilities between him and the Jews all the more. Now listen to some of the things he did to the Jews. He tried to get them to adopt Greek ways and forget as much about their godly heritage as they possibly could. He built a gymnasium outside of Jerusalem where Jewish young men could take part in the Greek athletic games. And those games were to be played in the nude, which would be uh, in the face of Hebrew morality. In one attack on Jerusalem, 40,000 people were killed and 10,000 were carried away into captivity. He put an end to the daily sacrifices in the temple. He looted the temple of its treasures, even carrying off the golden altar of incense and the golden lampstand. He forbade circumcision, he outlawed the observance of the Sabbath, and he made it a criminal offense for anyone to read or even to possess the Jewish scriptures. And so in the words of Daniel 8, 12, he calls truth to be cast to the ground. He made male babies who had been circumcised, he made them be executed and then would hang those babies 
around the necks of their mothers and parade the mothers through the streets around Jerusalem and then push them off a cliff to their deaths. He took the seven sons of one Jewish mother and fried them to death on a large metal pan while making the mother watch. And then he had her eyes put out so that would be the last sight that she ever saw. Now the vilest thing that he did from the Jewish standpoint of view was that he set up an image of Zeus in the temple and he ordered them to go in and worship that image. And then he had pigs sacrificed and he took the the blood of the pigs and sprinkled it all around the temple, defiling the temple. Daniel 8.13 refers to the transgression of desolation or the abomination that causes desolation. That means it was so awful to the Jews, it was such an abomination that they deserted the temple. Now under Judas Maccabees, the Jews rose up in revolt and they overthrew Antiochus. And to this very day, around Christmas, the Jews celebrate Hanukkah, the festival of lights, commemorating their victory over Antiochus and the reconsecration of the temple. Now the reason I spend so much time this morning in the introduction on Antiochus is because in the Bible he factors in as a type of the Antichrist who is going to come at the end of time. We know that from time to time men have arisen out of great social upheaval, have taken over nations and have become terrible dictators. We could talk about Hitler or Mussolini or Lenin or Stalin. But as we see today, the world hasn't seen anything yet. There is coming a final dictator known in the Bible as the Antichrist. And he is so horrible, he is so terrible that the Bible simply describes him here by calling him the beast. Now folks, as we sit here this morning in March of 2013, we're not to be surprised that the world is getting worse and worse and meaner and meaner. The Bible said it would be so. I think of what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 about what was going to happen in the end times. All of the violence, all of the rebellion of children against their parents, rejecting their parents' authority and their values. Lack of respect in general in society. All the vileness and and hostilities and men being utterly irreconcilable with one another. The Bible says that's going to increase more and more as time marches on. But finally in the chaos of the world when nation is rising up against nation and the world seems to be coming unglued at the seams there's going to come upon the scene a person who the world thinks will be able to make sense out of all the chaos. And the world is going to follow him. They're going to support him and cheer him on. And before long, he'll not only try to control religious activity, but he will also try to control commerce. 
He's going to especially set aside against Christians and initially, likewise, he will appear to be a friend to Israel at the beginning of the tribulation. Brokering some type of covenant or deal in the Middle East. And then halfway in, 42 months in, he'll suddenly break that covenant and turn against the Jewish nation and bring great suffering on them. Now he is going to do what Jesus would not do. You'll remember in the wilderness, Satan tempted Jesus and said, Jesus, if you will bow down to me and worship me, I will give to you all the kingdoms of the world. They'll be yours. And Jesus, of course, refused that. But the Antichrist is going to accept that offer and he's going to be the devil's representative on the earth. Now I think that scripture teaches us that his arrival is going to be so subtle. His rise to power is going to be so subtle that most are not even going to recognize who he is or what's going on until it's too late. And by then there will be untold pain and suffering for those who try to stand up against him. Now the first thing I want you to notice with me this morning out of the first ten verses is the beast out of the earth. The beast out of the earth. This is the Antichrist. Now folks, we first met the Antichrist back in chapter 6. And this shows some of the overlap that goes on in the book of Revelation because chapter 13 is going to go back and fill in some of the detail about the Antichrist that chapter 6 did not give to us. Now the Apostle John who penned the book of Revelation, he also wrote 1 John. Now listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 2 verse 18. He said, children, it is the last hour and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. And then Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 says this about the Antichrist. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or spoken word or letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. 
The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Likewise, Jesus spoke of his arrival in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 15. Jesus said, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go back to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant for those who were nursing infants in those days. Well, as we get into Revelation chapter 13, we see that he has arrived on the scene. The currents of world history are silently but swiftly carrying this world to a one-world type government and a one-world type leader. And all of that is going to come to fruition in the time of the tribulation. You see, Revelation eleven fifteen told us that the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And He's going to reign forever and ever. But before that takes place, Satan is going to make one last ditch effort to make the kingdoms of this world the kingdoms which belong to Him. And thankfully, he fails. You know, the devil is a counterfeiter. He has longed for men to worship him. God has his Christ. The devil has his Antichrist. God has his Holy Spirit who draws men to Christ. And so the devil puts forth his version of that, the false prophet that we'll read about beginning in the second half of this chapter today. There's many names given in the scripture for the Antichrist. In Daniel 7, he's called the little horn. In Daniel 8, a stern-faced king. In Daniel 9, the ruler who will come. In Daniel 11, a mighty king. In 2 Thessalonians 2, a man of lawlessness and the man doomed to destruction. And in Revelation 13, he's the beast rising up out of the sea. I think the man of lawlessness really sums up who he is is because he's going to be against all of the laws of God. And as Paul says there in 2 Thessalonians, he's going to oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God and worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. What an awful, awful horrendous character he is going to be. He is going to be like Satan incarnate, Satan in human flesh. Now I think of the contrast between him and the Lord Jesus. In John 6 it says Jesus comes down from above. In Revelation eleven seven, 7 it says that the Antichrist ascends from the pit. 
Philippians 2.8 says that Christ humbled himself. 2 Thessalonians 2 says the Antichrist exalts himself. Isaiah 53 points out that the Lord Jesus was despised. Revelation 13 points out that the Antichrist was loved and the world went after him. Luke 1.35 points out that Christ is the Son of God. 2 Thessalonians 2.3 points out that the Antichrist is the Son of Perdition. John 6.38 shows that Christ came to do the Father's will. Daniel 11.36 shows that the Antichrist comes to do his own will. A lot of other contrasts we could make. You say, but Scott, how in the world could, could the world stand for such... A person is this. Well, as Revelation 6 pointed out, he's going to initially come on the scene in peace. And people are going to think that he is the one who has all of the answers for the mess that the world is in. And they're going to follow after him. And then he's going to show his true colors. Well, Revelation 13 tells us that as John stood on the sand of the seashore, he was given a vision. The vision was of a beast coming out of the sea. Now, in all probability, the sea here stands for the mass of humanity. That's how it's described in Revelation 17. Out of the mass of mankind or the mass of humanity on the earth, the Antichrist comes from among them. This awful beast will be birthed from the womb of wicked humanity. Now some have also suggested in the scripture when we see the word sea mentioned, it's probably the Mediterranean that is in mind. And so they suggest that the sea that the Antichrist emerges from is the Gentile nations and peoples in and around the Mediterranean. I neither endorse that nor deny that. We just don't know. But one thing we do know is that dictatorships have oftentimes arisen out of times of confusion and chaos. Now look at his appearance that begins here in verse 1. As John sees this beast coming out of the sea, he has ten horns and, and, and seven heads. Now this is not the first time we see a description like this. This is how the dragon was described in chapter 12. And who is the dragon? None other than Satan himself. And so the Antichrist, the first beast, is the incarnation of Satan himself. And verse 2 says, And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Remember Daniel chapter 7. He's like the conglomeration of all of those beasts. Daniel was given a vision of all the coming kingdoms of the world from his vantage point there in, in Daniel chapter 2. And as Daniel saw that statue in chapter 2, it was of a, of a man in precious metals, a head of gold. Arms and chest of silver. And, and he went on to explain how all of those different metals and parts of that statue stood for the different kingdoms of the world that were to come. Well, those same kingdoms are described in Daniel 7, but not from man's standpoint of view, but from God's standpoint of view. 
Daniel sees a beautiful statue. God describes the kingdoms, though, in terms of wild beasts. And that's what we see here. The lion was the Babylonian Empire. It was a regal empire. And the second was the Medo-Persian Empire. And this is represented by the bear. It was a kingdom of tremendous size and strength. The third kingdom was Greek, represented by the leopard. The, the Greeks under Alexander the Great just amazed the world with their speed. How Alexander went about and conquered all the nations of the world. And then the fourth empire was the Roman Empire. Daniel simply describes it as being dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had iron teeth and it devoured its enemies. It was different from all the other beasts and it also had ten horns. Now we're told here in Revelation 13 that the first beast was like a combination of all the others. The Antichrist is going to rule a kingdom, in other words, that is swift, it is powerful, and it is absolutely ruthless. I want to clarify something this morning. It's clear that the Antichrist is an individual, not a kingdom. In many places in Scripture, he's described that way. For instance, in 2 Thessalonians, he's the man of lawlessness. And in chapter 19 and 20, he's captured, he and the false prophet, and are cast into the lake of fire. He's an individual. But the Antichrist is also a ruler over a kingdom. I want you to look with me in Revelation 17 beginning in verse 9. In Revelation 17 verse 9, John says, This calls for a mind with wisdom, the seven heads or seven mountains on which the, on which the woman is seated. What, what's the city of seven mountains? Wrong. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other is not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. And so the Antichrist and his kingdom are being described here. Now the late Dr. David Cooper noted that the symbol of the beast can refer either to a king or his kingdom depending on the Holy Spirit's perspective he's giving. It can either be like a spotlight or a floodlight. When it's the spotlight, it is the, the person of the Antichrist that's being called to attention. When it's the floodlight, it's the kingdom of the Antichrist that's in focus. That helps me do it, uh, to understand some things here. Now when you put all this together, it appears to me that the Antichrist is going to be the ruler over a revived Roman Empire. Now remember Daniel on this point. There are no world kingdoms mentioned after the Roman Empire. It's as though the kingdoms of the world stopped. 
We come down to the Roman Empire and Scripture and the kingdom of the world's end with that. Now some scholars will point out that in a sense the Roman Empire has never fully died. They point out how Western civilization today is the child or the remnant of the Roman Empire. And one day it's going to come back together. Many of the European countries, once under the domination of Rome, uh, have already come back to uh, sort of a coalition together. Already we see these countries in Europe coming together, forming almost, if you will, a United States of Europe. In fact, Dr. John Walford, one of the key commentators on the book of Revelation, says that this is the significance in verse 3 of the wound to the head. A lot of people say this is the Antichrist. Some kind of fatal wound happens to him, but miraculous, comes back to life. To deceive people. John Wolford says, no, this is not so. He believes the fatal wound, the coming back to life, is the resurrection, if you will, of the Roman Empire. When all this finally comes together and the Antichrist becomes the leader, the world is going to be amazed. The end of verse 3 says that they are going to follow after the beast. And they're going to marvel at him. So the beast is a person and a kingdom, or should I say a kingdom led by one primary person. It is the ten heads and seven horns, in other words, different nations and their leaders, but one leader is going to be predominant. He's going to be the real leader. Now look at his adulation in verses 3 and 4. The world goes after him and worships him. Just like Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9. He says the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You know the world is struck by appearances isn't it? Remember how a king saw When they saw King Saul, he was the proverbial tall, dark, and handsome. And immediately they said, he's going to be our king. And he didn't have a heart for God at all. Look at what King Saul did in the Old Testament. But they made a choice simply based on appearances. And they went after King Saul. And that's kind of what we see going on here. He's apparently going to be a charismatic personality. And he's going to be able to sway the masses by what he says. We see in verse 4 his authority. It's from the dragon. He's given his power directly by Satan himself. We see his arrogance in verse 5. He blasphemes God. And we see his activities beginning in verse 5 and going all the way down through verse 8. Look at the cruelty that's being communicated there. He wages war against the saints and he, he conquers them. He conquers them. 
The world goes after him, seems to worship him. Everybody that is except those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, they don't believe the lie. They're not sent the strong delusion because they have the Holy Spirit. And so they know the truth. Now verse 15 states that the result is they'll lose their lives perhaps, but at least they don't lose their soul. Now the challenge comes in verse 9. Look at what he says in verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. John is saying here, you better listen up. If you wait too late to give your heart to Christ, you're going to be among those who believe the lie. You better listen up. You better endure. And then John sees secondly the beast out of the earth that he begins describing in verse 18. This is the false prophet. Jesus in Matthew 24 said for false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead if possible even the elect. Whereas the Antichrist tries to unite the world under one government, this second beast will try to unite the world to follow the first beast. Now Revelation 19, Revelation 20, both identify him as the false prophet. We don't have to wonder about the identity of this second beast. He's told in the scripture as being the false prophet. He's going to be a minister of propaganda. In verse 11, he is called another beast, another of the same kind, same kind as the first that is. And look at the way he's described, a lamb, meekness, he's a smooth operator, but we're told that he has horns. Lambs don't have horns, so he's a fake. Wolf in sheep's clothing. He has power. Horns being a symbol of power. In fact, he has all the authority of the first beast. Look secondly at his mission in verse 12. Second part of verse 12. He said he makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. He forces the world to worship the Antichrist. He'll be the high priest, if you will, of the Antichrist new world order. I told you the devil is a counterfeiter. Holy Spirit points people to Jesus. False prophet points people to the Antichrist. And then beginning in verse 13, we see his miracles, all the miracles that he does. Again, we see what a counterfeiter he is. We know in Scripture that God does miracles. Miracles are nothing new. And the devil tries to counterfeit them. I mean, you remember what happened as Moses went before Pharaoh and said, let my people go, and he would throw down his rod and staff, and God did miracles through that. What did Pharaoh do? He called for his magicians who tried to counterfeit the miracles that Moses did through God's power. But the magicians did the same thing through Satan's power. He's a counterfeiter. He calls fire down from heaven and somehow or another we're told here he gives life to the beast. We're we're not sure exactly what that means. It may mean he's going to use technology in some kind of fashion in in a new creative and evil way. And then in verse 
16 and following, we're told about his mark. Again, he's a counterfeit. God gives us a mark. God puts a seal on us. And what is the seal that God puts on the believer? It is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Well, the false prophet's going to devise some kind of mark that'll be the seal of those who belong to the Antichrist. Now, folks, we don't know what that mark's going to be. Don't waste your time trying to figure it out. All kinds of fanciful suggestions have been devised to make the mark point to certain individuals as being the beast. Don't get caught up in all that. All down through history, hundreds of names have been pointed out. Oh, so-and-so's the Antichrist. And here's the mark that he's going to do. And they'll try to do all kinds of fanciful things with his, with his name, converting his name to numbers. And if they can't get uh, it in English to add up to 666, they'll, they'll look at his name in other languages, Hebrew or Greek or even Latin. And, they, and they'll stay at it and they'll change things all around with his name until they make his name add up to 666. Don't get caught up in all that foolishness. Now, if you don't have this number, you're not going to be able to buy anything. And we've already seen in the book how devastating that's going to be because all of these bad things that are going to be happening to the earth beginning back in in Revelation chapter 6 that's going to cause great catastrophes and and national disasters and famines. And, And so evidently the Antichrist and the false prophet come up with some kind of scheme to where those alive on the earth can still engage in buying and selling because things are limited. And so here's this mark. All kinds of arguments even today for a cashless society. These tribulation saints, or not not saints rather, those who follow the beast I should say, they don't have to worry about being a credit card, uh, having a credit card. They will be the credit card. Verse 18, he talks about this number. Again, don't waste your time. If we were to try to figure it out, I think the best we could do is say in the Bible, six is the number of man, seven's the number of God. Man always falls short of God. Six falls short of seven. Man's number three times intensifying how badly man falls short of the glory of God. That's as good an explanation as I've ever read. But again, we just don't know. You don't know until it happens. But I want you to think about something this morning. There's a big difference between the lamb and the beast. The lamb gives you a new name. The beast gives you a new number. And one of these days when your time is up, either your name's going to be called or your number's going to be called. This passage draws a circle around us calling for a decision. Men who are alive during the tribulation have to make a decision for Christ before all this takes place. You see, some are going to be nothing more than cowards because to believe in Christ and follow Christ and and, and reject the beast would be to die. Some will be complacent. All they're going to care about is being able to eat, drink, and carry on as before, and so they'll receive the mark. 
Others will be deceived. They'll, they'll, uh, they'll receive this mark. They'll believe the lie, the delusion. That's why so many of them follow the beast. Now folks, remember, hopefully the church has been raptured out of here. I hope my theology is right on that. It's interesting how in verse 9 it says... If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. Does that make you think of anything else? Back in chapter 2 and 3, he said, If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the churches. Seven times. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, here, as some scholars point out, you don't find churches here. It's just, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And they point out, aha, evidence, church isn't here anymore. Don't know that I'd build too much on that, but it's interesting nonetheless. But what a terrible time for those who were alive during the tribulation. But for us now and for them then, what I want you to see is there is a choice to make. Ladies and gentlemen, there is always a choice to make with the gospel. The gospel is both gift and demand. God offers His grace, His love, His forgiveness and peace. But you've got to repent of your sins and come by faith. To the Lord Jesus Christ. No difference in that regard. Us now and them then. It's either Christ or some other way. And if you choose some other way. Then the Bible says. You'll be a part of the second death. The spiritual death. And you don't want that. But folks, I want you to see, even now, we see here battle going on. The beast and the false prophet waging war against the saints and being given the power to conquer them. But I want you to notice, then and now, again the key. Back in verse 11 of chapter 12, John said, And they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. That's the recipe for victory right there for Christians in any generation. Amen? The blood of the Lamb. The victory has been won at the cross. Romans 8.1 says, To those who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. And Romans 8 ends by saying to those who have no condemnation, to those who are in Christ, there is no separation from the love of God to those who are in Christ. Christ has won the victory for us. There at Calvary's cross, that heavenly exchange was being made when Christ died, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Through the shed blood of Christ, you can have peace with God. Amen? And whether you live now or whether you live then, and you take a stand for Christ, and that stand for Christ costs you. The tribulation saints, it costs them their lives. Guess what? The Bible says, absent from the body, present with the Lord, they have ultimate victory. 
We're engaged in spiritual warfare. The saints at the end of time will be engaged in spiritual warfare. But God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know Christ? Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Think about that word, truth. Jesus is the truth. Those who do not know Jesus Christ are even more subject to the lies of the evil one. Because you see, when you receive Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said the Spirit will lead you into truth so whether or not the church is around during chapter 13 or not doesn't change the fact that we're here now we're in spiritual warfare now the devil is active now but to have the Lord Jesus in your heart enables you to know God's truth come to Christ make a choice now The choice one day won't be yours to make. Live in such a way now that you're ready for Christ coming, even if he comes for his bride this afternoon. You have nothing to fear because you're in Christ. And put on the armor that God supplies that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the evil one. Would you stand please? Our hymn of invitation is going to be on the screens behind me. And I would beg of you to come to Christ if you don't know him. We had a young lady in the early service today make her profession of faith. If you've already made a profession of faith and taken your stand for the Lord Jesus, maybe you're engaged in a spiritual battle today. Maybe either at this altar or just right there in the privacy of your seat where you're standing. You need to say, God help me every day to put the armor on and stand firm. The saints of God need to stand firm in Christ. Don't be surprised by the opposition you face in the world because of your testimony for Jesus. The Bible told us it would be this way. Again, it's going to get worse. But we have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we celebrate that.